This is the TriDot Podcast. TriDot uses your training data and genetic profile combined with predictive analytics and artificial intelligence to optimize your training giving you better results in less time with fewer injuries. Our podcast is here to educate, inspire, and entertain. We'll talk all things triathlon with expert coaches and special guests. Join the conversation and let's improve together. Together. Hey folks, welcome to an exciting edition of the TriDot Podcast. Everyone, go grab your goggles, grab your flippers, grab your pool buoys, because today we are talking about swim training. And you're going to need every pool toy in your arsenal to keep up with our first expert joining us today. I'm honored to be sitting with Team USA's Brendan Hansen. Brendan is the Director of Team Services for USA Swimming, a three-time Olympian winning three gold, one silver, and two Olympic bronze medals. Brendan captains five international Team USA teams throughout his career. He swam collegially at the University of Texas and was inducted into the Men's Athletics Longhorn Hall of Honor in 2015. He has held managerial and coaching positions with multiple top-level swim clubs and is a former world record holder in the 100 and 200-meter breaststroke. Brendan, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks. Every time somebody talks about me that much, I I tend to forget. So it's nice to, it's nice this morning to hear this stuff. Do, do you enjoy hearing yourself talked about like that? Or does it make you a little uh, uncomfortable to, to hear people brag about your accomplishments? No, sometimes I'm just like, oh man, where are all those medals that he just <laughs> talked about? Um, because my house now is completely converted to kid stuff. But, um, you know, it's just sometimes you, life moves so fast, you, you kind of forget about the past. So it's nice to go back a little yep. bit. You, you look back on, because uh, that was, you know, 2012 Olympics, 2008, 2004, you know, yep. in some ways it feels like it was yesterday, but it was also uh, over a decade ago. Yesterday, in, in but ways. now it's almost a decade, right? Yeah. And now we're looking, staring down 2020 in Tokyo. So yeah, it time flies. Well, now that I've successfully made Brendan feel really old and, <laughs> uh, and past his prime, uh, I'm going to introduce our second coach today. We have coach Jeff Rains. Jeff has a master's of science in exercise physiology and was a successful D1 collegiate runner. He's qualified for the Boston Marathon multiple times and has raced over 120 triathlons from competitive sprints to full-distance Ironmans. Jeff has been coaching runners and triathletes since 2009. Now, Jeff, you've had the opportunity to coach alongside Brendan in the past. How excited are you to get this guy on the podcast with us? Oh, I'm, I'm just excited as can be. Um, he's a good buddy of mine, even, even mentor to me. And uh, just standing on the pool deck alongside him, uh, I had a blast uh, for those two or three years that, uh, that we got to know each other. And who am I? I'm your host, Andrew, the average triathlete, voice of the people, and the captain of the middle of the pack. Today, we're going to get going with our warm-up question, and then we'll move on to the main set, talking with Brendan and Jeff about swim training, particularly what they have learned from years of coaching triathletes in the water and the primary differences between training in the pool versus training in the open water. Then we'll cool down by learning a little bit more about Brendan by asking him 12 super random rapid-fire questions about himself. It's going to be great. Let's get to it. Time to warm up. Let's get moving. With an Olympian on the show and with the Summer Olympics on the horizon this year, today's warm-up question is unapologetically Olympic-themed. If you could compete in this year's Summer Olympics in any sport, and sure, let's, let's assume in this scenario you have the talent 
and the athleticism to fit right in with the pros from around the world. What sport would you choose to compete in? Jeff Rains, I'll start with you. Wow. Uh, where do I begin? The, the Olympics would just be amazing. Um, I guess I can't choose anything running because uh, of my, my run background. That's too easy. It would right? almost be cheating for you to say, uh, say something track-related. Hmm. Okay. Well, uh, I would love to hold uh, the world record in, in, in the breaststroke, um, but uh, I can't steal that away from my buddy sitting here next to me. So um, I don't know. Um, I might have to say triathlon. We're all triathletes here, and uh, I know the sport. Uh, the year 2000 was at Sydney. Um, triathlon was introduced into the Olympics. So You can't pick triathlon, I, I dude. Love you to be, triathlon. I would love to be in. Come um, on, man. You got to go equestrian. I could just see him on a horse. Okay, like, how about on. this? Horse dancing. You would Let's be go. So cute come on. In a little jockey outfit, Jeff. No, I will not do horse well, dancing. I'm, I'm saying um, no to triathlon. He's not allowed to do it. Anyone that you can't do a, even a sport you coached. I'm I'm thinking here. All right, Brendan mixed it. You can't go try. What what are you gonna go with? Got it. Got it. So Brendan and I are uh, fellow hunters. Oh, good call. Yes, we yep. we we share that uh, extra hobby when we're not chasing our daughters around our homes and uh, swimming, biking, or running. Uh, when there's time, uh, maybe something that involves uh, skeet shooting, biathlon, uh, even even something like that. I thought you were gonna say archery. I thought you were gonna go Ooh. mystical flight of the arrow. <laughs> yes, little uh, little Hunger Games, Jeff Rains, little Hunger Games. I could really you. see you with one of those like bucket hats on, with like one side up, so that you know, just taking them on. Thanks, Brendan. There you go. I answered the question for Jeff. Is it my turn yet, Brendan? It's your question to now <laughs> to now answer the question for yourself. It's your turn. Yes. Yeah. So my answer to this question. And you question, can't say swimming. Okay. You can't say swimming. Fair enough. I'm not going to pull Been the. Been calling a, a Jeff Rains answer. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to go with not just the sport, but the arena that I wanted to be in. So okay. I've been to the Olympics. So a lot of times what I wanted, what I would want to experience is the energy of the arena and, um, track and field by far, you know, probably the most focal point, um, epic center of any Olympics is, the, is that arena. And so any running race, I think 200 meter, hundred meter, when the crowd just starts chanting and everyone's clapping and you just see what people don't realize is you see the world come together as one. And yeah. granted, there's people racing. There's, you know, eight, eight, eight athletes up there racing. But when you see everybody in unison clapping or getting excited about a final, um, there's an overwhelming sense of unity. And so I've always wanted to experience that from the ground level. And I think I as an that. athlete about to compete. No cause... doubt. And that's something that I think people watching uh, the Olympics don't get to see. Um, and something that I, I didn't really notice was going to happen until I actually had the opportunity to step on the blocks in a final and, and realize like, wow, everybody just wants to see these athletes compete. It had nothing to do with um, the political and, and yeah. craziness that our world has, right? And it, for, for one second there, I was like, wow, we are all together here. Um, and I always, I always felt like there was an energy in the pool, granted, and I was you know, kind of accustomed to that. But, but, but at some point, once you're in the water... I mean, you, you can't really soak that in probably as much yeah, as you sure. could. Yeah, you, sure, especially when you're swimming breaststroke, right? Your head's bobbing up and down all the time, so all you hear is like, ah, then it's quiet, and, and then it's quiet again. You're just, it's, it's tough, right? But That's exactly what I was going to kind of curveball question you here was that, that, that being in the arena and, and track and, and everything, you can hear the chanting of the crowd, you can feel that energy, but swimming underwater, you're kind of in your own world. Yeah. Uh, do, you, do you feel like you didn't get that full kind of grasp of that, that energy you were just talking about? No, and I, I think we're going to talk about this later, but when I, was, when I did do triathlons later in my career, that was one of the things that I had to really – 
uh, channel was people like when I would be running or transitioning out of out of the you know swim to bike or bike to run, and people were like, "Go, Brennan, let's go!" And I'd be like, "Thank you." <laughs> you know, I just like I was like thanking them, and I'm like, and they're like, "What are you doing?" And I'm like, "No one's ever talked to me while I'm racing before." You know, I don't so, know how to handle this. Yeah, I don't know what was, to do with my hands. I know. I was like, oh, it was crazy. You know, um, but yeah, I mean, I think I back to your question. I definitely think the hundred or two hundred meter dash, uh, straight up run where uh, I could just feel the energy of 100,000 people would be awesome. See, Jeff, if you didn't have a track background, you could have picked that too, but you, you had to go and ruin yourself for this. Brendan was allowed to pick that because he was a swimmer. So just, just to throw mine in the ring, um, I, I, my answer to this question would be a winter Olympic sport. I, I love the, uh, is it the biathlon where they ski and shoot, right? Like that's, well, the question was, I mean, if, if we're going winter sports, mine's straight up curling. Oh my gosh! Why not? No, Brandon, hey, I, we've already we've we listen, guys. The, the, I, I, this, I, this room of people, we have already done the hard aerobic type workouts, right? Like we've done the endurance stuff. Let's just go for longevity here. You want the uh, winter let's, shuffleboard? Yeah, let's just come on. Ping I, pong. Can, I can see you in the pants. I can, Ping you, pong. Hey, we'd still be competitive. You tell me I'm out of my prime right now. I'm in my curling prime, bro. <laughs> not he's not wrong about that. Uh, <laughs> I'm just telling you. And guys, Brendan, if you, you you're not in the room with us and you can't see, Brendan, I, I believe probably still has the swimmer 12 pack abs. Um, he's he's still he's still in 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 top shape. It's called Operation Avoid Dad Bob. Is what <laughs> it is Bob. right now. Yes, which uh, Jeff and I are doing really really well right now. But it is work, is it not? It's it's hard. <laughs> yes. So Summer Olympics, I'm gonna go fencing. You know all the sword fight movies that are out there. It looks like fun, right? So if I could be just like, but you, you don't want to be like. He'd look good in the suit, you know. Yeah, yeah, kind the, of, the, the beekeeper-ish, but <laughs> the the, the, the American athletes it. have the have the stars and stripes on the the front of the mask. He's right? researched this, Jeff. They uh, he when, saw when, the man, questions at it. When they win, you know, they get to rip the mask off and they have that like little like, <laughs> like fist pump like kind of moment, right? Like that that'd be super cool. So, it's, but you you don't want to just be okay at fencing. So if I'm assuming I'm like, you know, one of the best in the world at something, fencing is uh sounds pretty cool. Yeah. So you have like an alter ego, like Amigo Montoya. Exactly. Exactly right. You just you put on that. Mode. You killed my father. Yes. Prepare to give me a gold medal. There it is. On to the main set. Going in three, two, one. Now I do want to announce that we're going to circle back with Brendan this Thursday to hear more about his journey as a pro athlete and a coach. Uh, so Brendan, I don't want to get too sidetracked by geeking out on the Olympics and world records and all of that. Uh, we're going to dive into all of that on our Thursday episode with you. But maybe as, as, as a teaser and just to kind of get us rolling today here in the main set, could you go ahead and share maybe one of your favorite pro swimming race stories to tell? Yeah, um, sure. This is obviously looking back, total uh, 2020 perspective on looking back on my career right yeah. um and we we can sit here and talk about all the medals and world records and there's definitely some highlights right um and then there's also the aspect of who's in the stands and who's cheering for me and working hard and seeing it follow through and delayed gratification there's all these things that you can talk about but um the one the one story that i would probably say that resonates the most with me or at least the one i tell the most um because it has the most meaning um is the bronze medal from 20 uh 2012 in London, which was your third Olympic Games. Third Olympic Games. I'm 31 years old, which on the pool deck is basically you're the grandfather of the group. <laughs> um, you have the most experience. Um, there's a lot of uh, side stories to this. One, no one had ever won an Olympic gold medal out of lane eight before. 
Um, and I had s- struggled my way to getting into the final, was in lane eight, and I knew that I was going to be the last person walking out of the ready room, and I could control the whole all the other seven athletes that were coming on there. So uh, the benefit was I was not in that atmosphere as long as everybody else. And so yeah. I kind of felt like, okay, what are the positives of being in lane eight where really the odds are against you? No one in history of the Olympics has ever meddled out of lane eight. So I was trying to find the silver lining there, which I felt like I did pretty well. Got the support of my st- my team. And really and truly, like going back seven, eight months from that race, if you just kind of go back to that point. I mean, I'm sitting on a couch watching the NBC Olympic, uh, you know, teaser film, looking at my wife going, Hey, I think I want to make a run at the 12 Olympics. I think I want to do this one more yeah, time. And she was just like, I don't want to live with a guy who doesn't want to do it. So call up Eddie Reese yeah. at the university of Texas and see if he'll come show up to morning practice tomorrow. And that's what I did. And what's funny is, and I think it's really important for your audience to hear is that when you make that decision and you decide you're going to do something like that, sometimes in this situation, I had more people telling me that I couldn't do it than I people that I told wow. me I could. And, and I think that's why this, this medal means so much to me. Not, it's not the achievement aspect of it. It's the crap I had to go through from seven months ago to me touching the wall third. And that's why, like, I think the athletes that are listening, when they, when you look at those medals, you don't look at like you walking across or running across the finish line or finishing an Ironman or whatever. A lot of times it's what the story of the medal, like the, what the medal tells. And that's what the bronze did for me. Um, All the training hours put in mm-hmm. towards it. And it really was a turning point in my, that's look, we could sit here all day and talk about it, but everybody wants to know what was the turning point of your career? And when do you think you figured it out? And I was like, you don't ever figure it out. And if you haven't figured it out, you're so beatable, true. right? But, um, man, with the bronze medal, it was one of those things where when I finished, it was the first time in my career where I was like, I'm really proud of myself. Yeah. Like, this was for me. Where I felt like everything else was like, it was kind of calculated. We knew I had potential to break the world record. So when I did, I would do it or win a medal or I was swimming on relays with Phelps and those guys. So we were kind of expected, the favorites per se. Yeah. This, was, this one was all me. And the vulnerability aspect of that just really, really uh, shot me into a different mentality. And honestly, I'm forever de- indebted to that medal because it it's how I approach everything I do now. So just for the, the listeners here, Brendan, um, your, your bronze medal was your proudest achievement. And you defied the odds. You, you, you came back. You... you uh, you know, really, really honed in on uh, using the energy of the naysayers, uh, saying that you can't. Uh, so, so what was the actual the haters, uh, Jeff? Uh, the haters. They're called uh, haters now. What, um, what was the actual race? What was the event? And, um, you know, walk us through it. You know, what were you thinking? Did you know that you you were in third, uh, coming off that last wall? You know, what what was the event? Okay, so uh, it was the hundred breaststroke. Um, three years prior to this, I was the world record holder in it. The guy that was in lane four was 23 years old, in his prime, South African kid, a kid that looked up to me. Because you're the was, grandfather now. Yes, was clearly <laughs> was clearly on, on pace to break the world record. Um, and so when you go to the Olympics, the crazy thing is, is it's not about going a special, a special time or a PR or anything like that. It's all about touching the wall first. Yeah. It's place. And all yeah, about place. it is everything. And it, it really brings you back, which is crazy. It brings you back to what you started with when you were a little kid and you see kids playing on the playground or you see kids swimming in summer league meets or whatever it has nothing to do with times or ribbons or anything. They just want to go from one end of the court to the other and touch the wall first. Yeah. Right. So it kind of 
in your career, it goes full circle, but 100 breaststroke final, um, I'm next to, I'm in lane eight and lane seven is who was probably my biggest rival in my entire career. It was probably, it was his last swim as well. Um, we were both retiring after these Olympics, uh, Kazuki Kitajima from Japan. Him and I had made a run for almost a decade and we inspired an entire nation of Japan to start swimming. Um, and so and, it was, and you two just dominated the breaststroke events in yeah, particular. for a long time. And, and so it was, it was kind of fitting that him and I were next to each other. And I, I just remember, and we, like I said, we can talk about this in, in, a, in a later podcast, but this is where process is so much more important than, than the product. Um, I walked out there with the mindset of, okay, how, how are we going to do this and not what are we going to do in the race? Um, so my mindset as I walked out there, I got up on the blocks, and I think this is where you're going with this, Jeff, is just like I told myself, okay, dive on the water and nail the first three strokes. Um, because I knew that was going to set me up. You can't, you can't drive a ball unless it's teed up. And that was what I had to do. Again, if in these situations, if you've never been there, we are absolutely nervous. If you screw up, you have three and a half years or the rest of your life to think about it. <laughs> um, it is a very pressure packed situation. Um, one that the only way you can keep your sanity in those situations is to stay focused on how you're going to get to the other end of the pool and back and less on, what could possibly happen or let your mind wander. And so a lot of what we did, like I said, I just stayed in the moment. I tried to be a hundred percent present. Um, and, um, and it, and it worked out for me. And I just remember, I remember looking down 50 meters of water, not seeing 60,000 people around me and just going, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to touch that wall first. And then I'm going to push off the wall as hard as I possibly can. And I'm just going to make sure the last three strokes are the best that I've ever done in my entire life. And that's what I did. And I looked up and when you touch the wall, the timing system has, um, it'll only highlight the three medalists and then it'll have like a bronze, a gold, a, sil a gold, so, silver, so it's, and bronze. it's pretty immediate feedback. Yeah. On you immediately see you it. In. But what's crazy is, um, I had told, I was the team captain of the team and I, we did a team meeting prior to that. And I was the first event that night. And I told my team, I said, Hey, listen, um, you know me, I, I'm a person that walks the walk before he talks to talk. But I said, tonight, I'm going to medal at a lane eight. I mean, that's how certain I was, I was going to do this. And when I touched the wall and my name highlighted up, my team went crazy. <laughs> and like, let's, let's put this in realism. Like we were the most winningest team in this venue. Yeah. But my, the team like went crazy. I went back to the team area. Everybody was just like, can't believe you do it. I'm getting hugs from everybody. So again, it, it has nothing to do with the color of the medal. Um, it had everything to do with the meaning of it. And I think that can resonate with your audience a lot in the sense of when they look at their medals and they see what they've accomplished, it has nothing to do with what color it is or what it says on it. It's just what it means to you. And for me, the bronze medal meant dealing with namesayers, like Jeff said, dealing with people telling me I couldn't do it. And if I ever like want to be nostalgic and pull something out to look at it, it's that medal because at the end of the day, like that's what I stand on. And I, I granted, I've got plenty of gold medals that are just as shiny but don't have close to the meaning or story behind it like that bronze. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, guys, come back on Thursday for for more Olympic stories uh, with Brendan. We're going to get a little bit into into some swim talk today. Um, Brendan, as your racing career was kind of coming to a close, um, tell me just a little bit about about how you made the transition into coaching. I don't. So when you when you talk about transition, I don't think that um, there was much of a transition. The reason I say that is because. When you're a professional athlete, you're surrounded by other professional athletes. And 
what I found was is that we were all coaching each other just as much as our coach was coaching us. And a lot of times our coach had to very much the managerial role, um, just kind of keeping the guardrails on all of us. And then there was such a competitiveness in workout and, and we were pushing each other to be the best in the world that we were all coaches already. Um, so it was a very smooth transition out of um, the competitive world into the coaching world because I had been, I felt like I had been doing it for a decade already. Um, and really just trying to get the best out of the athlete. And I think what the best coaches out there, they can learn the technique. They can learn how to um, improve your, you know, your efficiency and, and, and hit your different energy zones and those things. What I think the best coaches are the ones that can build the trust with the athlete and get them to go harder than they ever thought before. Yeah. Uh, the coaches that I, that I always idolize and the ones that I wanted to be growing up, at least the ones I wanted to be transitioning into was somebody that when the athlete got out of the water working with me, they were like, I never in my right mind thought I was going to <laughs> do what I just did in that water or in that gym or on that bike. And I'm just like, to me, that was the win. Now, granted, there was times I'd leave the pool or <laughs> leave the facility <laughs> banging my head against the steering wheel saying, damn, we missed, we missed a great yeah, opportunity. Yeah. But you know, like any career it's, there's ebb and flows and it is what it is. Well, very cool. What what was kind of your your start in the coaching industry? Um, it it kind of one of those things where I uh, I left the sport of swimming in 2012. Um, had been traveling around the country doing clinics with swimmers and kind of making that I would say PDR, uh, PR media run. You know, just yeah. like running around, showing medals to kids, being around there, and and I kind of got the bug to just like, wow, maybe I should find 25 to 30 kids in Austin, Texas that I could work with. Um, found a country club pool really close to my house, walked on, excuse me, walked onto the pool deck and told the coach, I was like, Hey, I'd really love to work with you. And he like, didn't blink for like 20 minutes. And he was just like, you serious? And I was like, I just want to see if I, you know, and that's, were, were you in your swimmer speedo as you're uh, making this approach? <laughs> no, but I, I, but I think he knew who I was. And I just, um, I wanted to, at that point, feel like I was passing the torch on to somebody else. Um, and so I started doing that. And, you know, that's whole saying, like, it doesn't feel like work and, you know, you, you, the time flies. That's that's the way it felt when I was coaching. And so I um, I was like, OK, I'm in the right place. And this is just as challenging as anything. So I stayed with it. So, so Brendan, before we start talking about coaching triathlon and coaching triathlon athletes, how to swim, have you raced a triathlon as a competitive swimmer? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I, I don't know if we want to get into that right now or not, uh, that very humbling experience. <laughs> um, but yeah, so just a, a brief, like in 2008, Beijing Olympics, uh, we walk away very successful. Um, I was part of Michael Phelps's eighth gold medal. You know, like there was a lot of positive from that. But to be honest, I was 100% burned out from the sport. Um, just I had put my heart and soul into it for almost two and a half decades and felt like I really needed to find myself outside of that. Or like what I would say is like there were so many uh, things on the back burner in my life that was affecting my swimming career, right? Like, don't get me wrong. I was really yeah. good at it, but there was just so much extra baggage out there, right? Ma dating a girl forever I wanted to marry, um, wanted to find my career outside of that. Didn't feel like I had a lot of friends outside the sport. So it just when you sell your soul to something to be this successful in yeah. it, there is a cost. In 2008, I leave it. I immediately want to get involved with my city, right? Austin, Texas was growing at the time. It still is. Wanted to get involved with it. I felt like, well, how can I do that? But then also utilize my strengths. And as an athlete, triathlon was immediately the way I was going to do it. Um, plus, I find myself gravitating to things that scare me. 
um, that are not the easiest for me to do. This was one that I knew was going to throw me out of my comfort zone and kind of push me in that realm. Um, and it was, we, we talked about this before we started. Um, when I crossed the finish line on my first triathlon, it was the exact same feeling. And everybody knows what I'm talking about, that feeling when you finish and there's that sense of accomplishment and holy crap, there's part of me that didn't think I'd do this and I did it. Yeah. Um, that is the exact same feeling you get when you break a world record. No, no different. It is. I mean, to a T, if you've ever had that feeling crossing the finish line and, and, and accomplishing an Ironman or half Ironman, or let's just say for me, it was the Jack's generic, which was a 300, 300 meter swim. Uh, I think it was a 10 mile bike or 12 mile bike. And then a, and then a three mile run. I mean, just That's a, where we all start. Right, yeah. I mean, look, I'm telling you from a guy who literally two years prior to that was on a medal stand up there with the best athletes in the world, uh, winning an Olympic gold medal. It was exactly the same in New Braunfels, Texas, when I crossed the finish line covered in sweat. And I just, uh, I fell in love with it, man. It was awesome. That's amazing. So you're, so did your swim background in the pool, like, do you feel like it helped you at all? Were, were, were you just wicked fast on the swim split or, or did you find it was a totally different ball game? There's, I have, I have mixed feelings about that question um, because I look, here's he, the thing. He, he's I do, saying yes, but shaking his head. No. Well, at we're going to post time. videos later, right? We're going to post videos later of me actually like being in the water and, yeah. and, and showing you techniques. So I think from a technique standpoint and efficiency standpoint, the answer is yes. From a controllable standpoint, no. You have to remember, like, when you're in a pool and swimming in a competitive pool, I knew it was 50 meters of water. I knew it was 79 degrees. And there's a big black line on the bottom of the pool telling me where to go. Yeah. And so the problems that I had when I was competitively swimming were not nearly the uncontrollables that I had in a 300-meter swim where it was murky water, 100 other athletes in the water with me. The technique and efficiency aspect, it was just such a small piece of the pie that halfway through the race, I was like, wow, I am out of my league. And I was working way too hard to stay up there with the pros. Wow. And so I think there's a there's a whole different, like a, when you look at it, a pie, like there's a whole nother slice of this pie from a technique open water standpoint that I needed to educate myself on that, ne- the, that all those years as a competitor swimmer in the pool just didn't translate over. Um, and again, there was things that I could rely on breathing techniques or you know just straight up tech like where i could kind of control my thoughts while i was swimming that maybe some people needed to time in the saddle to understand with swimming but that open water experience man is 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 insane and um it took me a little bit of time to i wouldn't say i ever really mastered it but i definitely had to to go to folks like jeff to sit there and and, and do open water clinics with him to understand the aspects of that. I, I don't think anybody ever forgets their first open water swim uh, experience, right? It's it's just so different. And, and I don't know if Austin is like Dallas-Fort Worth where, where we're at, but I think in a lot of ma- major cities, those those sprints, um, sometimes even Olympics, that, that can kind of appeal to newer triathletes. Um, th- th- there's a lot of them that are in the toriums, that are, that are in pools. And so you're, you're getting an introduction to the sport with a pool swim, and then so when you do that open water race for the first time, it is definitely a shock to the system. So um, I think it's comforting for all of us to hear that an Olympic gold medal uh, swimmer also experienced that that same thing that the rest of us do. So. Yeah. And look, <laughs> the funny thing is, is that everybody doesn't know that. Right. Yeah. And so when I go up there, literally the triathlon was called the rookie. Or no, it was the Jack generic. It was what it was. But I mean, uh, to really and truthfully, like 
everybody thinks that you're going to be this awesome swimmer, right? <laughs> because you have this background and then heck, just to top it off, I have the Olympic rings tattooed over my right shoulder, Perfect. right? So now as we're getting up there with the pro group and you got all these people that are going, no, hiding. no, there was no hiding. And I, you bet your butt I was trying to, right? Like I'm sitting there neck in them, neck in the water, treading water, trying to be there. But Wait, when you're, when you're tall jacked and tattooed. Yeah. But if you go, uh, if you go into the, the mindset of me, knowing I'm going into 300 meters of open water, it was it was a very scary moment, and, and rightfully so. You have to respect it. Or do, do the spectators, do you feel like because you're, you are or, or at least were, I mean, the best in the world at, at, at let's say, swimming, um, they expect you to be first off the bike and first, you know, off the run course too. Like just because you're that caliber in one sport, they, they expect greatness out of everything you do. I mean, do you feel like I, I, that way sometimes I think we too? have a little grace as triathletes to understand that there's a bit of a learning curve. I remember... Um, Hell no, dude. I'll tell you this right now. There were people before I even got up there like, he's got Swedish goggles on, man. He's going to be this guy. Like, you know what I mean? Like I can 100% walked out into that water. They expected you to they win. They were like, this guy's coming out of the water first and i literally did not want to let them down i would have killed myself <laughs> for 300 meters to make sure that i came out of the water first and guys you have to understand like i was doing 70 to eighty thousand yards or meters a week yeah. training so i would do 10 300s in a regular workout on an interval of like 305 yards yeah right and I'm going on 300 meters of water. I'm going, okay, this is like one, this is not even close to hard. I remember getting out of the water looking like a baby giraffe just yep. born. Like, <laughs> yeah. like, like, right? Like, and, and I know people know what I'm talking we about. Know the right? Look. Yes, yes. Yeah, you know the look. But I was like, I, to Jeff's point, like, don't let the crowd down. And the competitiveness in any athlete at that caliber was one where I was like, I'm going to do everything in my power. And like, I just worked way too hard. And you could tell that after the first two miles of the bike that I'd worked way too hard on the 300 meters. Did you, in fact, come out of the water first? I did. But I was fourth out of the transition because nobody taught me, <laughs> <laughs> nobody taught me so, how to so, set up so my stuff. So he stuff. is human. <laughs> Yeah. So, so Jeff, t t tell me for you, kind of same question for your background, because you came to triathlon from, from the track. You know, and from being a very successful uh, collegiate runner, did did you find that your speed on the track and your experience, uh, uh, you know, racing there did did it help you as a runner in triathlon, or was there an adjustment period there as well? There was, and still is, an adjustment period, and it's it's really, and I think everybody who's listening here that has done a triathlon can agree with me in this, in that, you know, no matter how conservative you are on the bike or how hard you push on the bike that you are you feel like you're running through sand you feel like you're running through jello that first mile on the run course and i think most can agree also you feel like you're running a really slow 10 15 minute mile and you look down and and for the most part i think most people come through that first mile split off the bike way faster than they think they are there's just that weird unique feeling getting off the bike um but i'll say this that you know, I, I ran track and cross country collegiately and um, much better track runner than I than I am, let's say, trail runner. Um, but it, it's hard. Like my you could take my watch off of my wrist and say, Jeff, go run an eight minute mile on a track. And just off of perceived effort, you're going to come pretty darn close. I'll probably be within five to 10 seconds of that. And then you could say, hey. 60 seconds rest, uh, same thing, go run a five-minute mile. And I can probably do the exact same thing, be within five to ten seconds. But you tell me to do that 
go run a six minute mile off of a you know the the Jackson Eric sprint try come through that first mile split at six like it, it's the hardest thing it, it's just like that baby giraffe learning how to walk your legs um, have no idea what's going on it's it's a whole other ball game it's a whole other sport you know I'm I'm decent road runner a decent you know resume on the track but uh, for the life of me I I get my butt kicked on trail trail runs um, and so you know it's yes and no I mean. Um, to answer your question, um, well, I, what's funny is I, I think the the thing that helped me the most, because I, I think back to your question of did you do triathlons and then you know like I did triathlons for two years and then came back and swam competitively in the 2012 Olympics and before we started recording I, I told you guys like that was a huge component of my mindset going into it yeah and where a lot of athletes don't pay attention to the swimming or I'm sorry with the, the with the process oriented in the moment. You have to be a hundred percent present in what you're doing. Like if you, I mean, when you're racing, being a hundred percent present in what you're doing while you're doing it is is the way to be successful. And by that I mean, I'm standing next to Jeff Rains, who literally has done 120 triathlons. Right? With that amount of time in the saddle, he absolutely knows what certain areas feel like. Right? So, and they don't. It doesn't. It, it could be different per course. Right? Like, in, in, and I yeah. think that one it, thing it that can I be different on the same course on a different time, one thing day. that really helped me when I started to work through triathlon and that what I really took into the 2012 Olympics and, and really helped me in that race where I won the bronze medal was as soon as it started to hurt, I realized I told myself it's hurting for every single person right yeah. now. And this is where your technique, your training, your coaching, every of the, one of those things becomes a weapon. And you can utilize those to become better. And that's what I took from triathlon and brought that perspective and mindset of, okay, that's going to happen. 30, 40 meters into this race, you're going to start to hurt. You're going to feel like knives in your legs. Things are going to start to lock up. But what are you what are you doing right now to, in a sense, stay in the present and be 100% present? Because to your point, Jeff, I remember doing my uh, my first um, Olympic distance triathlon and running the 10K at the end. And at the time, I was running somewhere in the range of like, you know, 48 minutes for the 10K, whatever it is. And I remember coming off the bike and literally the entire race running it going, this is so pathetic. I feel like I'm running nine minute miles. This is insane. And I remember crossing the finish line and being like, I think it was like two hours and five minutes or two hours and seven minutes is what I finished the half or the uh, Olympic in. And my coach came over to me and was like, "Um, dude, you ran that 10K in 42 minutes. And you're so like, what? So my point is, is like, and I and I was miserable. I was 100 percent miserable <laughs> for ten, you know, for for, for those uh, six and a half miles. But I think that's why it's so important to just not. And I think Jeff is trying to say this is just like stay in the present, like yeah. stay in the moment and and respect it. And 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 I think that at that moment you'll realize like, and a lot of times it's so easy to lose trust in your training. Right. Like I immediately was like, I'm not prepared. I'm so I'm not fit. Oh, it's this. And my mind was a negative, 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 negative. And then when I crossed the finish line, they were like, oh, you actually ran, uh, you know, just under seven minute miles the whole way. I was like, I I really wish you would have told me that three miles in, I would have had so much more fun. So it doesn't it doesn't always pan out that way. What I love about the sport um, and, and you could, you know, relate it to Brendan in that open water versus pool swimming or, or translating, uh, running into triathlon. What I love about the sport is that each race, each training session is different in that, you know, Brendan has, uh, like he said earlier, he has a pool that is a designated distance. He knows the distance yards, meters, short course, long course. He knows that black line is there. 
He knows how many strokes, you know, at, at each given effort per length. Well, kind of that same, uh, you know, Brennan's a whole other league, but but we share this in that I'm kind of the same with the track. It's 400 meters. Uh, you know, the curves are the same distance as the straightaways. I know how to pace it. I know how to lean into the curve. You know, just little things uh, that are controlled. So every one of my events, from a 5K to a 400 to an 800-meter dash, it's all on that same track. You know, I, I travel all over the United States for these big events in college, and every venue was arguably identical. Uh, same with Brendan. Pools are arguably the same. Um, and I so, hope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and so we get into the the wonderful world of, of you know endurance sports where we have to we have to share 112 miles of roads and, and open water and and, uh, and so every swim is different. And translating that controlled mindset in, into the unknown is you know it, it can motivate and, and fuel some people or some people shut down. And and um, so that's what I like is that. No matter what your background is, uh, how well you train, every single race is different. And so that's just a whole other level for me. And so I feed off of that. Now. Which is crazy to me that people out there uh, that are triathletes have these personal best times. Yeah. Because like it, there's so, to me, coming from the competitive swimming world where there were so many controllable things, the first thing that I realized in my first triathlon to my last triathlon was the fact that there were so many variables that I could not control. And like I couldn't even wrap my head around the fact of the amount of training that I would have to do and then potentially get a flat tire. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like these are things that as an Olympian and a three time Olympian, I could not wrap my head around. Yeah. Because I think the benefit of triathlon, in my opinion, and what really, I would say, built my, my mindset going into the 2012 Olympics was the fact that um, you were there was a sense of accountability. What you put into it is what you were going to get out of it. Your training was going to show up in the race, but it was never going to show up when you wanted it to, right? Like, but then there was the other factor, of, and that was the same way in swimming, <clears throat> in competitive swimming, like what you put into it is what you're going to get out of it, right? If you're really prepared, but it may not happen every time. Yeah. Like I may get up and do 500 breaststrokes and it may be one out of the five actually really correlates to what my training was like and how I was, right? And you have to deal with those ebb and flows, failures and successes. But in the triathlon world, you take that same mentality, but then, oh, by the way, we're going to throw in all of these different <laughs> uncontrollable variables that you may not be. You may wake up at four o'clock that morning and guess what? Your stomach may hurt. Or, oh, by the way, it may have dumped three and a half inches of rain on the course. Like to me, that blows my mind because I'm sitting there and that's what allowed me to kind of, like I said, I went back into the Olympic world in 2012 and was like, my problems are not real problems. Triathletes have problems, right? I'm sitting there going like, everyone's complaining about it being 81 degrees or not 79. And I'm like, really? That's what you're going to let you, that's, gonna, what, that's you're what you're going to hang your speedo on. That's what you're going to be worried about. And I'm sitting there going, okay, I got the upper hand now because I had that triathlon mindset mentality of like, Hey, this is, this is a very controlled environment, and I can win out of it, even out of lane eight. And so for you, it, it wasn't after you f- – because my, my, my impression going into this conversation that, that I've now learned differently, but I want to point this out to, to our listeners. You, you didn't finish your pro swim career and then try triathlon. You tried triathlon between the 2008 and 2012 Olympic Games, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and so you had those kind of life lessons from the triathlon course to take with you that helped you kind of get that bronze medal – 
uh, in London, correct? Yeah. And then, look, there was a lot of physical change, too, um, just in, the, in training, getting on a bike and learning that, and then also learning how to run and all those aspects that really kind of helped me physically going into 2012. But I would say the number one tool that I took out of triathlon going into those Olympics was that, like, concrete mindset of just being, a like, impenetrable in the in respects to like, Hey man, this could all go away. And like, again, when I didn't have to deal with all those uncontrollable variables that come from a triathlon race and go back in the Olympic, like the Olympic venue, I was like, I got this. So yeah. you guys have both coached, um, triathletes and elite competition swimmers. Is there a big difference in the way you teach stroke technique to a triathlete versus just a pure pool swimmer? So when we're looking at uh, a competitive swimmer or somebody that's basically just going to stay in the pool and swim for exercise, or they're going to, you know, that, that swimming is their sport versus a triathlon triathlete. Um, when we're coaching those two athletes, I think the, the perspective is very similar. Um, a lot of times the foundation of a pool swimmer is a little bit stronger than a triathlete. And a lot of times it's, it has a lot to do with their mindset, right? Because um, sometimes the changes that a triathlete makes on a bike or a run are somewhat immediate. Whereas when you're looking at from the pool, there's a little bit gradual and they may, they don't have that like aha moment. There's not a lot of times when you're coaching somebody in the water that when you make an adjustment to their stroke or anything like that, it takes a little bit of time yeah. before they have that like breakthrough interval change or breakthrough aha moment. It's not like, hey, if I raise your seat a little bit on the bike, you're immediately going to recognize the power wattage output that you can put on that bike, right? So that's the challenge that we have as coaches. And I think what Jeff and I did so well when we shared the pool deck was the collaboration aspect of our of what we did. So him coming from his world and, and me coming from mine, um, just I think what makes great teachers and coaches are people that can sit there and say, hey, one size doesn't fit all. We would work with that athlete, understand their challenges and what they were struggling with. And then him and I were, I mean, I can't tell you how many times we would talk on the phone going home from work or randomly call each other in the middle of the night and just be like, hey, I've been thinking about this. What do you think about making this change to their workout tomorrow, whatever it may be? Um, and it was nice to collaborate with that. Um, and I think that's what made both of us great athletes was that, that, that mentality of just like, Hey, I'm never, I'm always going to be in that learning mode. Yeah. And I think we take that into to coaching. I don't think there's a drastic approach difference. I will say that what makes great coaches are people that can rely on other people, rely on other people on the pool deck and continue to find ways to get the most out of that single athlete. And all I can tell you from just a challenge standpoint with triathletes is the fact that they're looking for that aha moment. And I'm just telling you, it's not going to come. Because they're, they're from, seeing it in the other sports. Yes. And all I can tell you is that if there's ever, of, of the three uh, disciplines, if there's one that you have to have trust in your coach 100% on, <laughs> it is the swimming aspect. And again, I'm, I'm just coming from that world. So that's what I'm, I'm going to obviously gravitate towards and be biased on but that's where i feel very strongly and just like just trust me on these drills that i'm teaching you yeah because i'm one hundred thousand laps ahead of you <laughs> like, like you know <laughs> it's just like it's what i tell my kids i'm like just trust me you're gonna like this food i'm one thousand yeah, yeah, yeah. cheeseburgers ahead of you, like, you know? <laughs> like, and you try to sell them on that but the trust factor in the swimming aspect is so crucial for us yeah, I, I think for a triathlete, I mean, w when you introduce a new drill or a new kind kind of form technique, anything like in, into your routine, like it, if anything, it feels weirder at first. Like if anything, you feel less efficient because you're so aware of this new thing that you're doing. I mean, you you, you never feel better right away when trying something new with your stroke. So 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 Jeff, what what are maybe some of the things that you've seen 
in, in coaching triathletes versus coaching pool swimmers? Well, first to kind of reiterate what Brendan said, something that we did really well is at our facility, we, we had uh, tri swims versus like your master swims. Um, and, but at the same time, master swimmers could come to my triathlon specific pool swim workouts, and then my triathletes can show up to Brendan's master's swims. Um, and then at the same time, there were times where Brendan would coach my tri swim and I might coach a master swim one day. Maybe they were out at a, at a national swim meet and I needed to stay in town and coach one of his. So knowing the athletes and we were very specific and intentional in how we wrote workouts. So there would be certain sets where there might be some IM sets or some non-freestyle um, sets, but we, we created and strategically planned workouts to where everyone uh, is happy, and that's the hardest thing to do. So how do you have someone on a, on a 115 base interval versus uh, you know a 245 base interval all doing the same workout? Well, maybe half the people in the pool are triathletes and half are strictly swimmers, so how do you accommodate? everyone and so uh, we strategically w- wrote workouts where triathletes could look at their Garmin watches and maybe they didn't want or have to do flip turns even though we encouraged it um, you That's know me. keeping yeah, in mind like okay how many triathletes are in you know there's 50 people in the water right now okay 10 of y'all are triathletes right and so um, you know just knowing that some people will never and, and won't ever do a flip turn, or maybe they're they're not going to work on their kick. Uh, even though we used to say the the best swimmers are, are, are the best kickers, or the fastest swimmers are the fastest kickers. Um, but in the tri world, you know, a lot of people rely on that wetsuit. They don't want to kick. Um, and so, just certain sets, knowing your your athlete base, getting to know what intrinsically motivates each and every athlete. Um, that you have in the pool uh, is, is kind of what Brendan alluded to earlier. You can know all of the knowledge and have the degrees and certifications, but making a successful coach is knowing what intrinsically motivates each and every unique person in the pool. And then how do you adapt in the moment um, to, to help that athlete achieve their goals? And look, to be totally honest, one of the biggest things I learned from Jeff when he would I would watch him and, and kind of um, – observe him working with triathletes was um, his innate ability to tell the athlete what we were going to do and then why we were going to do it. And, and that I, I travel the world now, right? Talking yeah. to other coaches that are just pool swimmer coaches that are working with for through USA Swimming, and I tell them how important it is to express the why, right? Like as coaches, especially from when you're like, we have this ivory tower aspect where we're like, I have all the knowledge and you're down there laying in the water and I'm going to talk over you and tell you what it is. But I learned at the perspective from Jeff and working with triathletes that if you meet them level to level, obviously these are more adult athletes. I was working with more adolescents, you know, ages 11 to 18, which is a different perspective than what Jeff is. Most of our triathletes were in the range of, you know, 22 to 55, 65, had some older ones. But understanding that you have to explain the why, what they're doing, um, really enabled me to tap into a lot more energy out of the athlete and and get more buy-in. Like I said, the trust factor. And he he had that connection immediately when I watched him do it. And I was like, that was the one thing I was like, I want that. I want, I want to be able to do that. That's and awesome. So if, if, I think um, it's important to, to mention that I learned a lot from watching a coach work with triathletes, and I learned a lot from triathletes when I worked with them because I would get immediate 
adult <laughs> mature feedback. Sometimes I didn't want to hear it, right? But at the same time, like expressing the why as a coach really helped me. And I think it's this one that's one thing that a lot of athletes, triathletes out there don't ask. They just they just buy in blindly. Yeah. Right. Like, hey, I want you to go do eight one hundred freestyles. Um, okay, and then, you know, just keep your head down. And they're like, okay, and they just like get in the water, like wind up toys, and do it. But I'm like, ask the question why? Because the more buy in and the more like the ownership you have in 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 your disciplines, I think you're gonna you're gonna you're, you're gonna get closer to that wow factor. Yeah. You're, you're gonna learn more. You're gonna yep. improve at a faster rate. You're gonna understand what you're doing, why you're doing it. Um. So 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 tell me this, and and Jeff, we'll start with you. Um, working with so many different triathletes in the pool, uh, are there maybe a few kind of common mistakes you find yourselves working on with triathletes or is it really just totally different athlete to athlete? It's different athlete to athlete, but something that, uh, triathletes, um, coaching triathletes in the pool, it's, it's a little unique because they're training for three different sports. And you could argue that the shortest distance of every triathlon is the swim portion. And so swimming probably takes the most time to improve on, but there's, there's a give and take, right? The, the, the low-hanging fruit is like, I only have this much time to train, and I'm going to spend it on the bike and run. Um, if swimming takes the most time, arguably, to, to improve upon, um, I only have two days a week to swim. And, you know, swimmers are there seven plus five plus days per week swimming yeah and so if you have a triathlete in the pool and they have two other sports they got to focus on nutrition and strength training as well all these things i only have these triathletes in the pool for maybe one to two times a week and so that that whole why aspect that brendan was talking about is something that you've got to be intentional with uh that little bit of time that you have uh with that triathlete in the pool um, but you know, some, some things that are almost even myths or that I see in the pool with triathletes is, um, you know, they, they, they feel like, okay, I have to bike, which uses my legs. Uh, I have to run, which really overuses my legs. So I don't want to kick when I swim. I'm going to have a wetsuit on the buoyancy, uh, saving your legs for the bike and run that, that that's a myth in, in the triathlon world. But that's something I see a lot is, oh, I don't have to worry about doing flip turns. It in almost the pool. becomes the excuse um, for not training the kick. And not yeah. training, you know, the well-rounded form, you know, of swim technique. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm such a runner. Um, you know, chicken legs will say that I had to learn uh, big gear riding on the bike. I, I would kick with the kickboard and not go anywhere. You know, things like that. It, it took a long time to translate that. But um, some of those things, I'll, I'll run through them real quick. Just a couple quick things yeah. off the top of my head here. Um, you know, kicking is the big one, right? We, we, we mentioned that. Um, but um, breathing patterns, sighting, you know, head positioning, um, a lot of these things, a lot of triathletes will sag their lower body because they, they feel like they don't have to have perfect head position because they're going to be looking up sighting so much. Brendan calls me out in the middle of master swims all the time. Like, hey, you could get more distance per stroke on that breathing side if you uh, would lower your head a little bit. Uh, you're, you're so used to sighting that you're, you're looking up at the end of the pool, you know, uh, just stuff like that. Um, so being intentional and just learning the aspects. If, if you're a triathlete out there, 100%, and this is another podcast, learn how to freaking flip turn. Also, Learn um, how to freaking flip turn. Yes, quote me on that. Um, and also learn the other strokes. They're going to make you stronger. You're, 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 you know, you're learning different things. That's a whole other podcast, but don't be afraid to mix in other strokes and even try to learn other strokes. Uh, Maybe the breast stroke, perhaps. Settle down, settle down. <laughs> Not everybody's ready to be that awesome. <laughs> I think here's a th here's one thing that I'll say that um, just and this goes across all athletes 
and I call it the tin cup moment. Do you remember in tin cup when Kevin Costner's sitting there and he's in and he's, he, he lost his swing, right? And yeah. he's in the trailer and he's got like every gadget known to man on him. Yeah. I think a lot of times you have that aspect of overcoaching and then we have also have the overanalyzing. And so there's that dynamic that we have to deal with all the time where if something's wrong, I'm going to throw everything at it. And there's a lot of times when I would work with triathletes and Jeff can agree with me on this is where they'd be like, well, I was thinking about my head, my feet, my arms, and I was trying to pull and I'm like, whoa, dude, there's no way I could possibly think about all of those things at one time. And I think what Jeff and I did so well when we were coaching together and what great coaches do is, hey, let's focus on one thing. And that one thing is potentially going to fix five. Yeah, And so a lot of times, and we're going to break down drills later on in some video and do some other things, but when we break down drills, really simplify it. Like it's not, at the end of the day, I'm also at the same time teaching five-year-olds how to swim across a pool. They're not thinking about the 20 moving parts that you are, but yet they're getting across the pool. So let's not overanalyze this. And from a coaching standpoint, maybe telling them too much is too much. And there was times where Jeff's like, that's too much, Brendan. Like you've gone way over like tone it back and that's where we would have that collaborative relationship where i was like you're right man let's just get him thinking about where they need to be looking and that was going to fix their body position you know and that and that's where that that's where i think it's important to understand it takes a village and then you know we figure things out don't take on too much too soon you know have have an intention cup moment don't do it like literally (laughs) (laughs) like guys let's talk about this for just a little bit We're, we're recording this in austin texas and austin is blessed with several great open water swim training areas uh, but for folks that don't have uh, a Barton Springs, a Deep Eddy, or, or a Lake Travis, or the Colorado River, right down the road, what are some of the best ways to train for open water swimming while in a lap pool? Something that I think was was always fun um, is that I, I would call Brendan, and I'd say, hey, you know, I've got my tri-swim coming up. Uh, you know, I've got three of the 20 lanes, and I know you have 17, but you know what? Uh, I need two or three of your lanes. And, you know, I know he's at home rolling his eyes, you know, like, what, you know, those triathletes. What I would do a lot um, was ask Brendan's permission to take the lane lines out of the pool. I would take the lane lines out of the pool, show up a little bit early, throw some open water siding buoys in the pool and have my athletes focusing on, you know, one sweep versus three sweep turns around the buoy and, you know, just stuff like that. But um, if you don't have a program that that allows you to do those types of fun aspects, um, you know, the things that I would do um, with our junior team, our, our junior triathletes, um, there's a lot of little things that you can do in a pool to help your open water techniques. Like simply, do you drift right or left? You know, if you were swimming in open water and the sun's in your eyes and 200 people are around you and they're punching you and it's white capping. I drift to the um, side that I'm breathing on. Mm, so if I bilaterally breathe every three strokes, I stay pretty straight. But if I ever, for, for wave current, people around me find myself favoring one side, I will start drifting that way. Side note about Andrew Harley. Please continue. Oh, awesome. No, I mean, I think everyone has that dominant side. And, and you know, Brendan actually, you know, for a number of years would say, Jeff, that right arm is doing that weird thing again. Jeff, and I always, I know my right arm does something weird, you know. And, and so um, until I saw myself doing it, so getting film of myself doing it, I, you know, wasn't able to correct that. And so some people are visual learners. Some are learned by doing, you know, some are seeing, have to see it, some have to hear it. Um, and so that's a lot of the why and, and knowing what intrinsically motivates your athlete, but things that we can do in the pool, um, I would have my athletes, especially my juniors, it was kind of a fun game. I might take a lane line out of the pool, but I would say, Hey, get on top of that black line, um, push off of the wall, streamline a little bit, take 10 or 15 strokes with your eyes closed. 
And then as soon as you you count to to 10, 12, 15 strokes, stop, tread water, and see if you drifted right or left. And in less than 25 yards, you would be dramatically, um, you know, like just mind blown on in 10 strokes. They, how, how far off you could get? They went 10 or 15 yards to the left. I took five lane lines out of the pool, and not even in 25 yards, they're 10 yards to the left. Yeah. You know, what is that for 1.2, 2.4 miles? And so um, just little tricks like that. I would do tread water starts, um, not let my athletes, you know, push off of the wall, or they have to U-turn, um, you know, doing the one or three sweep turn, uh, not allowed to touch the wall, just little things like that. And even in a master swim group, I would say, hey, you know what? Uh, you know, these three lanes are designated for triathletes. You're going to do this set with all the master swimmers. But, you know, for this 400, you're not allowed to touch a wall. Or, hey, you know what? Instead of pushing off the wall, you guys get to leave two seconds early because you're going to tread water start uh, and stuff like that. So you can be intentional in open water, uh, pick a few techniques um, and be intentional with what you're doing. Brendan, what were a few things that that kind of helped you as a swimmer transition to the open water? So my swimming background was really strong. So I knew that I could swim no problem. Um, the first thing that I realized was one, there was multiple other people around me. One of the things I really liked to do was, um, put myself in the most crowded lane I possibly could. Um, we would do like certain passing drills and things of that nature where like a lot of times people go to a pool and they immediately look for the lane that has nobody in it. Yeah. And if you want to get better at open water, you better find the most crowded lane or get your whole team into one lane and, and and just start focusing on how you're going to move around people. And Hey, you're going to get kicked. Hey, you're going to get, you know, understanding where your arm is, or if you get hit with the arm, how you still try to find that catch and not lose your rhythm. The second thing for me was the visual aspect. Um, I, I looking in the water and knowing that I couldn't see eight feet of water and see the bottom of the pool that really threw off my, my proprioception. Like I really didn't really, I, I, I could close my eyes and know where my body was in the medium of water, but I didn't know where I was in respects to how far down the course I was or <laughs> yeah. where I was in the course, even with me sighting great. And so one of the things that I, I found myself doing was, um, just taking duct tape or electrical tape and putting it over my goggles and only giving myself a certain view of um, a sight view, right? So like really limiting my ability to do that, right? To be able to do that. And, to, and then I'd also do sets where like Jeff would say, hey, look, let's go 10 100s freestyle. And, you know, the last number, you know, four and five are hard and, and nine and 10 are hard. And then he'd be like, hey, take your goggles off for, for five and 10. Like, I don't want you to see it all. Like again, making you uncomfortable, but trying to maintain that you know these are these are uncontrollable things that just you you have to get the brain and the heart to understand that if something happens to you in an uncontrollable, you can control your heart and you can control your thoughts. Yeah, and that's where open water to me, just from the like again the visual aspect, and then being able to. It didn't mean that there was a time where your goggles were going to fall off and you'd have to swim the rest of the race without your goggles on. But it definitely allowed me to understand that, like, hey, here's an uncontrollable situation, and I have to control my heart. I have to control my heart rate from going and keeping it at that threshold level, or my mind being like, oh, God, this is, you know, like you see these people just like lose it, you know, where they're like, oh, my God, things are going well. I can't see the bottom pool. Oh, my God, I'm going to drown. I'm going to drown. And all of a sudden, you're like, you're fine. You're fine. That's the kind of, um, aspects that I would try to work on and try and put myself in those positions because I was, like I told you all, I was not prepared for my first open water. And those were the, those were the two areas I was like, I'm freaking out right now. Like I'm freaking out because every time I take a stroke, I'm hitting somebody. And when I put my face in the water, I can't see anything other than the end of my goggle lens. 
Yeah. And it was really screwing me up. And the only thing I could do is like to Jess point, like what calmed me down was I was I had the ability to just center my my mind in closing my eyes, finding like a Zen moment and just keeping my stroke balanced and knowing that if I kept my stroke balanced, I was fine. But those were the things that I went back to after my first triathlon and worked really hard on. Jeff, that reminds me of um, him kind of sharing that. Um, one of our Tread Out ambassadors, um, I'm, I'm forgetting where she's from now, but her name is Chung. And she actually raced Ironman Arizona uh, the, just this past year. And so we were in Arizona and she was at some of our events getting ready for the race ahead of time. And she specifically told us, but before the race, she was like, my plan, the wa- I know the water's cold. I know I don't deal with that very well. I know there's going to be a lot of people around me, and I don't deal with that very well. Her plan was to, as soon as she entered the water and, and got away from the, the boat dock a little bit, she was going to purposely kind of stop, tread water for a second, dunk herself under the water a couple times, get used to the temperature, get used to the water on, on her face, get used to there being people all around her, and compose herself, and then start swimming. And she did that, and she said it worked great. She said the rest of the swim, she was, she, she was fine. But, but it was that moment of, okay, if I need to center myself, let, let me get out there, let me get in the water, let me get the people around me, and let me realize I'm okay. You bring up a really good point, and I've talked to a lot of people about this in the last couple of years, having left the competitive world, and even when we were coaching, I, ta- I call it finding your triggers. Finding a way to get into the right mindset to where you, you're you in the go mode and the not the no-go mode, right? So yeah. for her, all of those things were planned out. She knew they worked for her, and it was her what I would consider superstition. We see it in all other sports, but nobody really does it if you're a recreational athlete, yeah. right? You watch somebody in the, in, in the, uh, in the ready room or you see somebody on the on-deck circle, right? And they have a certain routine. That's the trigger. Find your routine of what that's going to do so that you're able to do that. So when you talk about preparing for open water, a lot of it is not necessarily the fitness aspect. Yes, we can all get fit, right? And I was extremely fit coming from the swimming world, but understanding and finding a new routine and, and a trigger that was going to set me in, a, in the mindset of like, okay, you got this. You're going to be just fine in front of, you know, is what you have to work on. And that's different for everybody. And from a coaching standpoint for Jeff and I, it was really fun to help athletes find those triggers and find those routines because they are, they, they become part of your process. Well, let's, let, let's, let's end with maybe this uh, while we're talking about it. And, and we had a, a couple different ending questions, plans, but, but we've, we've taken, a lot of great time here, a lot of great stories, a lot of great stuff, and maybe let's let's land the plane here today uh, for this main set. Um, if if you're if there's an athlete listening today, and, and maybe they're they're working out for themselves, okay, what what does race morning look like for me? What is going to get me to the starting line? Whether it's a pool swim, whether it's an open water swim, what's going to get me in the water, feeling like I'm ready to crush it instead of dreading it because i think a lot of triathletes when they come to the sport that the, the swim is the hardest part for them to wrap their their mind around right they they, they probably didn't start off uh, a, a competitive swimmer they, they might not have had a lot of experience lap swimming in the pool uh, or, or maybe they did maybe they're a strong swimmer and, and it's just brand new to them being in, in a, a competition environment uh and on triathlon day what maybe for for you guys both um and, and brendan i'll start with you um thinking back to your racing career pre-race whether you're jumping in in the the pool for the Olympics, going for that bronze, or whether you're lining up, uh, you know, lakeside for a, a local sprint Olympic down the road, wh- what do you kind of do mentally to get yourself ready for a race? Let's just go before that day, which is the night before, right? Um, 
for me, a lot of times, like everybody's like, how do you sleep in the village when you know the next day you're about to race against the world and, and potentially everything is coming to a halt and it's on when somebody else clicks the beeper and it goes off and then you're racing against seven other people for a medal that you've thought about since you were a kid. How do you go to bed at night? And the thing is, is that you can't, you can't change the outcome or affect the outcome at all in that moment. So it goes back to what I talked about earlier, which is being 100% present. And at that moment, I had to check all of those things and just say, right now, the best thing for me to do to be ready in that moment, which is 12 to 15 hours from now, is go to sleep. Is go to sleep. Yeah. That sounds so hard. It is really hard. <laughs> yeah. But a lot of times, like, that is part of, I mean, look, and, and then it's, it's just like, yeah, you, it's okay to have those jitters. Because if you have those jitters, that means it means something to you. Right. Like if you yeah. talk to any athlete out there, they're like, as long as I'm still nervous before I get up uh, in the in the batter's box or before I get uh, up to, a, you know, the the tee box and I'm about to, to tee off at the U.S. Open. Like if I don't have those jitters or feelings, then why am I even doing this at all? Right. But, but we sometimes have a negative response to that and we shouldn't. The thought is, is like, man, that's that means it means something to me and that's what I should be doing. So I think changing your mindset on why you have those nerves the night before and just saying, like, right now, the best thing for me to do is go to sleep. That's what you need to do. The second thing in the most human response that I know of is that the day before the day of the race, everybody wants to do more and you should do exactly what you've been doing in your training to get ready for it. Because from the neck down, your body should think it's just another training day yeah. and maybe a test day, but from the neck up, you know, it's different, but from the neck down, your body should hundred percent feel like it's fueled the same way, recovered the same way, ready to respond when you want it to respond. And to do that, you better have a system and routine in place that's been done multiple times of that day. And I can tell you, there's been multiple mistakes that I've made traveling around the world, having to deal with different time zones, different menus and, and whatnot, different cultures, all those things that I had to deal with. But a lot of times I found a lot of, um, just it was a safe zone for me or just a lot of comfort in knowing that I could stick to my routine and finding ways to stay in my routine. And and sometimes the more important the event was, the more I found myself being like, oh, I'll do this today. I'll stretch extra more. Or I'll do, you know, and, and, and all that does is throw off your body from what it's really capable of doing. So we have this saying, just do what, do what, do what you need to do to get to the dance. Do what got you there. Yeah. It's exactly what we do. I mean, that's in a sense, that's the way the Olympian thinks. Yeah, and I would even take it a step further. Um, a lot of triathletes want to want to cram that last even month, and, and and arguably it takes about you know two to three weeks for your you know physiology or your fitness to to start to really detrain. And so two to three weeks out, two to four weeks out, you know we race, rehearse, and try it out two and four weeks out uh, for those key events, and we're not trying to gain a lot of fitness, you know, inside of two to three weeks out from those big races. And so just like Brendan said, um, you know, not just the night before, but I would, I would take it further back and be intentional on the technical aspects of your course coming up. Find someone that's been there, done that, uh, get on webinars and, and, and all sorts of things, read race reports of other athletes who have done that because your fitness is set. Like Brendan said, you got to the dance, the dance is here, right? And so even if you're a month out, you're, you're at the dance, you're already ready and and so instead of doing another 100-mile ride or cleaning your goggles a fifth time or pumping up your tires or checking that wheel the night before the race a fifth time, you know the air is still in that tire. You're fine. Um, so what I would do is, you know, 30% of the sport is the physical fitness. Um, you know, you've got the technical aspects. You've got the mental uh, preparedness and all, all the things. So, so know your course. Um, and, and those days and weeks leading up to it, um, 
uh, you know, I, I do the workouts that I've always been doing. I don't do anything crazy different, like you know, like we were mentioning. Um, don't add an extra 500. Don't do a sixth open water swim that week. You know, you know your wetsuit fits. Um, so I would even just take that day off, and I might just say, you know what? I usually train for this hour and a half. I'm going to call up somebody. I'm going to call a Brendan Hansen and say, hey, you know what? I'm this is my first out of state race. I, I have to go to a hotel. Like, you know, how did you, you know, did you go to, you know? Whole Foods and in, in, in every race locally, you have your same meal, but you know, you're in China now, you can't go to the Whole Foods. What do you do? You know, get that, um, those technical aspects and get the advice from someone who's been there, done that, and, and focus on those things uh, as intentional as you can. Great set, everyone. Let's cool down. For our cool down today, Jeff and I are going to drill Brendan with a dozen rapid fire questions. Brendan will be rejoining us on Thursday to share more about his pro athlete journey, but we want to get to know him just a little bit better before that. So Brendan, are you down to answer a bunch of super random and moderately insightful questions about yourself? Mm, sure. I'm here. <laughs> Let's do it. Sorry. Let's hit it. <laughs> are you asking me or telling me? Yeah, I know. All right, number one, who is another Olympian, swimmer or non-swimmer, that you've always admired? Um, I always admire consistency. And so someone like Usain Bolt, who literally has been as consistent as he's been and dominant in what he's done, um, is somebody that I always look up to. I think it's really um, good to be good once, but I think if you can be good multiple years and be as dominant as he has been in this sport, I, you know, there's, there's something to be said about that. Brendan, it's a Friday night, and you and the girls, uh, you know, you, you want to go out, you, you want to do something in Austin, Texas. What's just kind of a, just a good go-to free night chill moment for you and the family? You know, there's just so many good eateries around Austin, and so I think any um, anytime you can get them outside playing around the playgrounds, um, Austin's got beautiful weather. So there's just a lot of different places. I really can't pick one, to be honest with you, but uh, just somewhere with a playscape, somewhere the kids can get their energy out, and in the afternoon we can spend some time with the kids and enjoy a couple tacos. I'm all in. This is a bonus question. It's not on the script, but while we're talking about your family, uh, what is your favorite perhaps maybe uh, animated film that you've seen with your girls? Man, I'll tell you, there's always that moment in animated movies where they, it's you know it's for the parent that's yep. sitting there. Um, right now, Frozen 2 is pretty good. I'm not going to lie. Olaf <laughs> brings his best performance. Uh, the music's uh, top-notch. There's some good 80s ballads in there, which Chris makes me laugh. has some nice existential moments. I'm just, just saying, <laughs> you know, Sven the Reindeer has some, has some moments. I actually, uh, two days ago, had my first daddy-daughter dance with my uh. almost four-year-old daughter, and it was Frozen-themed, so yeah. I'm right there with yeah. yeah, you know it well. <laughs> All right, Brendan, are you traveling with Team USA for the Olympics this year? Um, I will be traveling with them on training camps. So our team will be picked six weeks out from the from the Olympics in Omaha, Nebraska, and then we'll go to Palo Alto. So we'll be at Stanford's campus, and then we're going to go to Singapore for uh, two weeks prior to the Olympics. Now, up to that point, the credentials to get into Tokyo are really hard, and I want to make sure that our, our entire medical staff is there. I don't. I feel like I can do my most damage or good damage yeah. uh, in the training camps, making sure that this team is, is mentally sound and physically ready to go for those games. Love it. Uh, Brendan, what is the um, last movie that you have seen in theaters? Funny you should say that. Frozen 2. Oh, I was hey, Elmo Draft House, though. Elmo Draft House. So, you know, you get to eat some food. That's have a yeah, that's how you do it, right? So, but Frozen 2 was, uh, I mean, it's a hot ticket in our household. At the height of your swim career, how many calories were you taking in each day to fuel your training? 
This is a this is a really hot topic. I, I would say somewhere in the range of sixty five hundred to seven thousand calories a day. Um, and I, it's it's looking back on it, it was we were grazing throughout the entire day, um, eating five to six meals rather than the traditional you know breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Yeah. Um, we had all these different meals in between, and, and looking back on it, that's probably what you needed to, to stay recovered. So, Brendan, a uh, little little uh, tangent here, but if you were casting an actor to play the Brendan Hansen in a movie about your life, I would choose Ryan Reynolds for me, but who would you choose? That's a really good one, actually. <laughs> um, I, I would actually say between him or Bradley Cooper. I can see Bradley Cooper. Yeah, I was going to say, I got, I've been you. asked if I look like that once in a while. Like, yeah. you know, if I grow the beard out, I kind of look like the sniper. Um, guy can come across like that. Um, but yeah, I'm not the tallest guy, uh, so you need one of those two guys. I think they're both about six foot. I think that would work. Yeah, pick up a guitar, sing shallow, and and you could you could totally pull off Bradley Cooper. Uh, okay, what is your current go-to way to unwind from a long day? Actually, a long day for me doesn't really include exercise. Um, so the way I, I'm able to kind of uh, handle the, what what Jeff calls the chaos of having three kids under the age of ten. Um, one is alcohol, <laughs> which I try to avoid, right? I mean, I'm just being totally honest here. I want to put my best foot forward. Um, and the other is, is exercise. And it really allows me the time of, to just, uh, forget about everything and, and enjoy the moment. And sometimes just hearing my heart sit at like 150 to 160 beats just allows me to, to, to keep the sanity than the craziness that is my life. Um, so a lot of times I travel a lot. So coming off of a plane or getting into a new city or whatever it may be, just throwing on running shoes and running that city. Um, that's how I find myself. I, I see this as not necessarily unwind in the question, but more about balance. And I think balance in life is so important. And the way I'm able to do that with a crazy work schedule and then a crazy home life is definitely the exercise piece. Brendan, what coach in your swim journey has impacted you the most? Uh, this is hands down Eddie Reese. Um, he's the John Wooden of our sport. He's the head coach of the University of Texas for the last almost 40 years now. He's the most winningest coach in NCAA history. But the nice thing about him, and I mentioned this earlier in the podcast, it's so important to find a coach that's going to push you and, and, and is open enough that you can push them. There's multiple times I'd walk in his office and say, hey, I want to break the world record this summer. And he didn't look at me like, okay, you cocky little sophomore, get back in there and start swimming, right? He'd look at me like, let's build a plan, let's do this. So there's that trust level. There was a belief system between the two of us, and we were able to work together to really change the record books. What pool from your entire swimming, racing, and coaching career would you say is your favorite pool you've ever swam in? Man, that's a that's a tough one. The, the, they all have their different moments, right? But when I I, I think the venue aspect and the, and the loudness of any pool, um, Beijing's the water cube was pretty cool. Um, it, it's, it's just a crazy feeling when you're swimming down the pool and all of a sudden the entire building changes from purple to green or something, you know, like, <laughs> right. So like, yeah, there's that aspect of where the, the, the whole, there's just an architectural craziness to the, the venue that you're in. And there's a vastness to where you feel really, really small in a big area. Um, it's really fun to be in those situations. On a scale of one to 10, how hard do you root for the, the university of Texas, uh, Longhorn athletics? I, I'm going to say seven. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I really, um, I'm a diehard Longhorn. I've, I've been here my whole, my life since pretty much since 2000 when I stepped foot on campus. Um, I, I'm just a fan. I wouldn't say that I'm a crazy 
like diehard be there first for the You're not getting app alerts on your phone with like all the sports no, what's happening no but I, I at the same time i want my kids to, to know what the university of texas meant to me what the campus and the people that are associated with it meant so a lot of uh, these questions are gonna they're gonna scale through my own family and my kids and what i want them to experience and that's why we take them to basketball games football games swimming events things like that what is your favorite place in Austin, Texas to grab a bite to eat? Oh my gosh. You have to pick a meal, okay? <laughs> Cuz I'll just I'll say this right now. Like honestly, it it, it sounds stupid, but um for breakfast, Cisco's, their their migas and biscuits are incredible. I love um, breakfast. Let's go. Yeah, Let's go right, right now. I mean, you cannot bring that up and and not kill a podcast and just pack this stuff <laughs> up and leave, right? Uh for lunch, like, there's just so many hole-in-the-wall Mexican places to go eat, or like you can go hit up barbecue, and it's like, so what kind of barbecue do you want to hit? So that's that. And then for dinner, um, Austin's grown so much that we just have a lot of really good uh, restaurants in and around in Austin. And right now, my number one restaurant to go to is Lonesome Dove. It's based out of um, in Dallas, Texas, but they've come there. And it's just, to me, uh, if you're picking my last meal, it's coming from Lonesome Dove. Last question, Brendan, what are your number one kind of current favorite pair of goggles that you would recommend that maybe we all buy and try, or maybe just what worked for you the best uh, in your career? That's, <laughs> I don't know the Is name of Is that a trick question? Uh, no, it's not. <laughs> I just, I do want to say that I am not sponsored by anybody and, or anything of that nature. I think when it comes to goggles, it's what um, is, is most comfortable for you and what you vision, right? Like what you see, a lot of your success in the water is going to come from your your visual and whether you need that input or you don't. And so I like a lot of peripheral vision with my goggles, and that's where I come from. Um, I, I wear Speedo Speed Sockets. It's something that the gasket's really nice. It's a silicone. They last. They, they're worth their money in gold as far as how long they're going to last. Uh, they're a low profile, so they're very protected. If you get hit by somebody, they don't rise high on your on your face. Um, and then ultimately, I do like the fact that I can see really well out of the peripheral. It's like they, they, the, the lens tends to bend around the side, so I can really see um, out the sides of, of the goggle. Well, that's it for today, folks. I want to thank USA Swimming's Brendan Hansen and TriDot's Jeff Rains for talking to us today. If you enjoyed hearing from Brendan today, remember that he will be back with us on Thursday and TriDot Podcast episode 22, share more about his career the Olympic Games, and his new role for Team USA Swimming. Shout out to Tribike Transport for partnering with us on today's episode. The next time you need to travel for a race, head to tribiketransport.com to let them get your bike there race ready and stress free. Enjoying the podcast? Have any questions or topics you want to hear us talk about? Head to tridot.com slash podcast and click on submit feedback to let us know what you're thinking. We'll do it again soon. Until then, happy training. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to subscribe and share the TriDot podcast with your triathlon crew. For more great Tri content and community, connect with us on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. Ready to optimize.